Zephaniah chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 1 to start us out here. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Emariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Today we continue in the book of the Twelve and we're to the book of Zephaniah. I feel like we've been in this series forever because we had a couple weeks off throughout here, but we keep going. Um, been interesting to me how much the minor prophets written so long ago have so much to say about the world that we're in right now. And uh, although I feel like every Sunday I sort of have to give a history lesson for us to get behind the text a little bit, but that's part of the deal when you're studying texts this old and from cultures that are so different than ours. So let me tell you a little bit of the backstory of Zephaniah. There were these two kings in Judah. Remember, Judah is the southern part of Israel at the time. Uh, Israel's been divided into two nations because of fighting kings. And there's two kings, successive kings in Judah, Ammon and Manasseh, that start to worship other gods and, and even bring that worship into Jerusalem. So there's the temple to, to the God of the Jews, but there's also these temples to these other gods. And in fact, the worship spaces start to mix. So you start to worship other gods in God's holy temple in Jerusalem. This is not, not good news. Not, not a good thing. All the time, the Assyrians are gaining power in the area, overthrowing nations. Egypt is on its way in the direction of Israel, also trying to build up its territory because of these other nations that are growing in strength. And Judah is just in a bad place. Israel's already been in trouble by this point. Uh, the northern part of Israel. Judah is not in good standing. But there's a story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings starting in chapter 22 or 2 Chronicles starting in chapter 34 of a king named Josiah. And Josiah had his people go into a room in the temple where there are all these scrolls and uh, to, to, to get something. And they ended up finding, sort of back behind this shelf, they found a book a scroll, and the, the text doesn't say what that scroll is. The, the general belief is that it's, it's pretty much what we have in our Bible today is Deuteronomy. They find Deuteronomy that has kind of an overview of the, the people of Israel and the book of the law. And Josiah looks at this, he reads it after some of his people read it, and, and, and it's like forgotten history. Like Israel has gone so far that they don't even remember where they came from. They don't even remember the basis of their faith. They don't remember this book. And so Josiah mourns. He rips his clothes. He goes into a fast. And, and he starts, he starts to, to uh, make some changes in Israel. Um, Josiah started his reign, by the way, when he was eight years old. And it was in his 18th year, when he was about 26 years old, that he found this copy of Deuteronomy, started doing all this stuff. But Josiah was not around very long after that. Uh, Josiah ended up leading some people into battle against Egypt, and he was killed. Uh, so Josiah has these great reforms. He tries to get Israel back on track, but he, he doesn't seem to be there long enough to really make the changes that are necessary. And so within a couple of generations, real quick after Josiah's gone, we're back at some of the same struggle that Israel has been through with throughout their history. One of Josiah's 
faithful supporters and advisors is this man, Zephaniah. We don't know that much about him. Um, judging by what I read in chapter 1, he's the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. So he, he's of the royal bloodline, uh, probably then sort of related to Josiah in some distant way. And he is an advisor to the king who tries to help bring about these reforms and apparently brings some critique when he survives Josiah and the reforms don't happen. So again, uh, in this book, as like some of the previous uh, book of the 12 minor prophets that we've looked at, he's talking about the day of the Lord, this day coming. And this, this phrase, the day of the Lord, really comes out of the time of the judges. Earlier in Israel's history, before they had kings, they had judges. So what would happen is the people would get all out of whack. They'd be worshiping all kinds of other gods. They would end up getting in trouble from another nation surrounding them. And God would rise up, or would raise up a judge to come in and sort of reform. And that judge would sort of be like a priest, sort of be like a king that would come in and take over. And they would lead the people in rebelling against these other parties and kind of bring Israel back on track. And you'll know some of them, right? You know, Gideon, you know, the judge Deborah. Uh, Samson, you will have heard of him. There are a number of judges that sort of come on and follow this role. And the phrase, the day of the Lord, comes out of that time of the judges. It comes out of this time where they said, you know what? There's all these people coming against us, but there's a day coming. There's a day coming where the Lord will fight for us. There's a day coming where the Lord will get rid of all these foreign people that keep attacking us and keep taking us over. But the prophets come along and they take that same phrase, the day of the Lord, and they turn it on Israel. And they say, no, listen, when God comes to do all this judging and fight for righteousness, you are not necessarily going to automatically be on the good side of that judgment, that you are a little bit off, that it's not a good day, that it may be a day of terror. It may be a day where you are not so pleased when it comes. So let me read some sections here. Zephaniah chapter 1, I'm in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, God says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill the master's house with violence and fraud. Hey, you understand the history now, right? That the Lord's going to call a day to come back and everybody's going to sacrifice to Him. But when that day comes, all those people who've been sacrificing to other gods in foreign attire and, and ripping off the people of Israel those who are poor and oppressed, who aren't, can't afford to then do these sacrifices, God's going to punish. And, and typically, like, all, like the texts of the day of the Lord, we see the pieces here. God's wrath on enemies, darkness and gloom, heavenly bodies losing light, fortresses and strong structures crumble, wealth lost, the battle cry of God followed by an attack. Enemies of God will be in dismay and will be silent before God. Let me keep reading verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. You, you don't, those are parts of town. 
Okay, the fish gate was a trading gate where fish would come into town. Second quarter refers to a different section, a neighborhood in the city of Jerusalem. A loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traders are no more. All who weigh, weigh out silver are cut off. At the time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So the Lord is going to go through, go through Jerusalem, not just other nations. He's going to go through Jerusalem. And he's going to look for people who have this phrase. And apparently this was a phrase that was used in Zephaniah's day. The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. The Lord won't do anything good, but he won't do anything bad either. That's the phrase. That's the phrase that says, you know, God is distant. God doesn't care. He's off in the distance somewhere, but we can do really what we want. We don't owe God anything. God owes us nothing. You can make yourself, fix your problems, fight your own battles. By the way, that's a pretty American mentality, isn't it? We can be self-made people. We can do what we want. We can get what we want out of life. We don't need anybody else. We certainly don't need God. We live in an age where people say they might believe in God or a higher power, although less and less seem to these days. We may pray when things get really bad, but do we actually rely on God daily? Do we actually pray to God just in big decisions or in little decisions too? Zephaniah and the prophets cannot accept the kind of thinking that says God is off in the distance and he doesn't care and he has nothing to say about what's going on in this world and we're just kind of on our own. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God written about on that scroll Josiah found. Okay? The God that we know, the God of Scripture is the God who cares, who is deeply invested in his people, who is with his people, who is active in this world who makes this world not just at a distance, but but is active in the process. This is what the Bible can teach us. This God that cares. But if God is not like that, then God can seem very distant and we can do basically whatever we want to do. Zephaniah calls these complacent people. You think sometimes we get a little complacent? This is what idolatry does. Okay, this is what happens in Jerusalem. When we're going to worship all these different gods, when we're going to sacrifice for all these things that are so important, you know what becomes really God? Nothing. When you have many gods, you have no gods. And when you have no gods, who becomes God? You do. You can, you can do whatever you want at the expense of whoever you want. And we don't worship all kinds of different gods, but, but, but I would say that we put a lot of things as ultimate in our lives. My job is ultimate. My kids are ultimate. My uh, uh, getting this new car is ultimate. This new house is awesome. This next promotion, that's going to be the thing that's going to make everything right in my life. That's idolatry. Because only God can truly answer those longings, even though some of those things are very important. Okay, But my kids are not ultimately, ultimately important to me. I worship God through raising my kids. Okay? My kids can't be God. They can't be everything to me. I can't rise and fall based on how my kids feel or what my kids do in their lives. I can't do that because that makes them God and not God God. I can't, I can't rise and fall based on if other people like me. I can't, I can't rise and fall based on how I do in my job, what my income says or what kind of car I drive. I can't do that. That's idolatry. And we start to have all those other gods 
we get complacent about the one true God that should be the one true center of our lives. Zephaniah judges this kind of mentality. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Is God overreacting? Is this undeserved? Is God some kind of bitter child coming in and getting angry that he doesn't get his way? No. If God is truly God, then he has every right to be jealous and upset when we put anything else in the place that he should have in our lives. Period. He has that right. In fact, it's by grace that he, does, that he doesn't do more out of anger and wrath, that he does more out of love. The complaint is not just against Judah. We see in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, Zephaniah speak out against the nations surrounding Israel. See, this is the chapter that Israelites could get behind, right? We like when God gets angry at our enemies. We don't necessarily like when God gets angry at us. Starting in verse 5. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Oh, and you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. These are the Philistines, Philistia, the, the land to the west of Judah. He goes on to, uh, to speak out against the Moabites and the Ammonites. Those are the people uh, to the east. On the other side, well, for you it's this way. On the other side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea would be those nations. And, and Zephaniah judges them just the same. Pretty harsh words from Zephaniah. This is not a book that you typically see on coffee mugs. Right? We have lots of Christian verses we like to put on coffee mugs and People will cross-stitch them and hang them on their wall. Zephaniah is like never like that. There's never been a Zephaniah pillow, ever, that you could buy at a Christian bookstore. It's harsh words. It's bad news. But that's not where Zephaniah ends. And you find this a lot. You find this a lot in uh, these books of judgment. You find this a lot in the Psalms where David is so in despair, right, that you've got to finish it. Because if you finish it, you understand that that's not the final answer. The bad news is not the final news. But everybody, listen. Sometimes you've got to hear the bad news. Sometimes you've got to understand where you need to get yourself together a little bit more, where you need to give things over to God a little bit more in order to be willing to and ready to accept the good news that God has for you. So in chapter 3, Zephaniah sort of turns his target back towards, towards Judah a little bit more. But then he ends with some, some words of hope. Words that God is going to someday do something different. If you're in your Bible, go to chapter 3, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. And we're going to see this, this understanding that Zephaniah is promising that God's going to do something about this. But we're going to read this text, and I want you to think about these words as I read them, and as we talk about it, in terms of Jesus, because it's astonishing. It's astonishing. 
Sing aloud, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. I'd stop right there. That, that's a very different tune than the first couple chapters, right? You're going down, there's going to be weeping, it's going to be bad. Now, here we have something else going on. Rejoice and exult. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So there's this promise going on here that someday God's going to come in our midst. Now think about that phrase, in your midst. Like we, have this, we have this understanding that God is everywhere because God is everywhere. He's not physical being like we are. But Zephaniah is promising that in your midst, somebody's coming, Jerusalem. Somebody's coming. And somebody's coming, this person in your midst is going to clear your enemies. There's no more evil to fear. Sin, death, those things are going to be defeated by this one who's going to come in your midst. A king of Israel. Now think about our doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus comes in our midst. Is he a king of Israel? Yeah, remember, remember the words written on the cross above the head of Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. He is the king that comes. Not just a God in our midst metaphorically or spiritually. Jesus enters our midst. Verse 16. And on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I mean, just think about that. Zephaniah is speaking to Jerusalem. Where's Jesus, where's Jesus die? Jerusalem. Speaking to Jerusalem, saying that the Lord your God is going to be in your midst. And who's it going to be? A mighty one to save. A mighty one to save. This is an amazing description over Jesus. He will rejoice over you and quiet you by his love. I love that phrase. I've been really hanging on to that phrase all week as I've been studying this text. Quiet you by his love. Have you ever been quieted by the love of Jesus? You understand the image, right? Okay, I've seen it many times in my house. A kid gets hurt or cries. My wife picks the child up, puts, puts a child real close, and, and squeezes this, just a little bit. And there's normally a little bit of movement, right? I don't know how moms do that. There's like a little movement. They can just jiggle the kid just right. If I do it, it looks like an earthquake, but my wife can do it, and it's like this nice, soothing, and whisper something into their ear, pat them on the back, and quiet the child with their love. Isn't it amazing to think that God does that for us? I don't know, I don't know where you're loud. I don't know where you're crying. I don't know where you're upset. I don't know, maybe you're like me. When I, when I get upset or I'm worried about something, I can't quiet. You ever have trouble turning off at night? Just uh, same thing over and over again. Worrying about this conversation, worried about that, worried about what I'm going to do. And I can't, I can't quiet my mind. What does that mean that Jesus quiets you 
by his love. Right? He holds you so close that you feel so loved that those voices stop and the tears dry up and you just are okay in that moment. Verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer, suffer reproach. Behold, at the time I will deal with all you oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change the shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Care for the lame, gather the outcast. Have you ever heard a better description for the life of Jesus? Jesus walked around and did this. He cared for the lame, gathered those who were outcasts in the community and said, no, 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 we're going to have a party. Come on in. In fact, a lot of the Pharisees were always mad because of the people he hung out with. He eats and talks to sinners. He gives dignity to a woman in the, that a crowd was going to stone. He touches the untouchables, takes the shame that we feel in our lives and makes them an opportunity to praise him. And even for him to be praised by others through our testimony about his love and his grace. Verse 20, at that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, said the Lord. See, this is the tricky, the tricky thing about the day of the Lord. You won't hear this talked about a lot because it's, it can be confusing. But the day of the Lord is something that happens, but has already happened, but hasn't happened yet. What Zephaniah and the prophets don't know that we do is that it happens in two parts. That number one, Jesus comes and he dies and he defeats sin and death. And so we say it's over, it's done. And yet we wait for the time and we long for the time where the day of the Lord is finished. Where all rights are wronged, where everything is made right. And, and for you and I, we live in between these two parts of the day. It's like the morning is the resurrection and the evening is the great banquet at the end of all time and we're in the afternoon somewhere. And we're kind of waiting in between those times and it's not an easy place to be because we don't always feel real praised, right? We don't always feel real love for our faith. God says, I will restore your fortunes. How many of you feel like you've had some not very fortunate events in your life? Things have been a little stacked against you. Things have happened that you didn't want to happen. You feel the pain and the ache and the sorrow and the hurt. And we wait for that day when, when the victory that's already won, but has not yet happened, comes. And it is not an easy place to be. It is not an easy place to be. But we look forward to it. And we are the people in this world that stand in between and say, no, no, no. The world, the way you think, is not the way this is going to go down. And the way you are acting is not the way the story ends. We are now the prophets. We are now the warning. And so I think Zephaniah has a lot to say to us in between the promise of Jesus that, that, that he may not have known he was writing about, but when we look back, we can see it. And the future finishing of that work. We know now that God is not a useless and a distant God. Though he doesn't always feel real close to us. 
But when God, when God doesn't feel real close, it's not because God moved. It's because we moved or because the world is heaping a lot of pain on us. But God stays there. I think we need to learn from Zephaniah and from Josiah before him that, that we need the book. We need the Bible. If the world is really God's and everything is in it, then this word that God gave us that tells us about how life is supposed to go, we should be into. We should be into that word. Everybody, if this is the only Bible you're going to get today, you are starving yourself spiritually. You need to go back like Josiah and find the book and find your story. Find your beginnings again. Live out of that reality. And then we need to repent of all the things we put before God and rely on more than God. That looks different for, 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 for many of us. It looks different at different times in our lives. But we, we do have this tendency to rely on and find our hope in things that are much less than Christ. Whether that's our bank account, whether that's our house, whether that's our reputation, whatever that is. We need to learn to repent of that. We need to find Jesus and realize how amazing His saving work is for us. That He came among us and that when He left to go to, to heaven, He didn't just leave us, right? He left God's Spirit in our midst. We have a Holy Spirit that's with us. We should live differently because of this Spirit. And some of us need to feel that Holy Spirit because we desperately need to be quieted by His love. Quieted in the midst of our pain, our sorrow, our worry. We need to have our shame changed to praise because some of us feel a lot of shame, buried by it, controlled by it. You feel like life has beat you up, that God needs to restore your fortunes, trust and hope. May the words of Zephaniah be words of both challenge and hope for you today. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for the words of Zephaniah that seem so fresh to us even this day. Lord, speak to us that we would find challenge, but we would also find your love. In Jesus' name, amen.